This is the Clinical Pharmacology Podcast with Nathan Tusher, where I discuss clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics topics from the perspective of drug development scientists. Today, we're going to discuss population pharmacokinetic analysis to support drug development. Over the past 20 years, population PK analysis has become a standard technique used in drug development and by regulators to support labeling claims. Population PK analysis is required for virtually all new drugs that exhibit some level of systemic exposure. This is because this analysis technique provides excellent flexibility to analyze data from different types of clinical studies and can also evaluate potential impacts of many extrinsic and intrinsic patient factors. We're going to discuss the February 2022 guidance from the FDA titled Population Pharmacokinetics. Population pharmacokinetic analysis combines compartmental PK structural models with mixed effects statistical models to analyze data across a range of doses, populations, and study designs. Because of this flexibility, it has become a critical tool for clinical pharmacology experts to evaluate drug pharmacokinetics. First, I will talk about some of the applications for population PK analysis in both development and drug labeling decisions. Second, I will discuss the model development and validation process. And finally, I will discuss what files and information should be submitted to regulatory agencies. Population PK models are most often used during clinical development. So although the technique can be applied to non-clinical studies, my comments are really going to focus on clinical development activities. So there's a lot of different uses for population PK models. Let me tell you a couple examples uh, related to pediatric studies. So first of all, um, selecting the optimal starting dose in pediatric studies. If you have a population PK model from adult patients already, you can use standard allometric techniques to simulate different doses in pediatric patients and then select the dose that would give you the same AUC or the same Cmax in those pediatric patients that you saw in the adults. This is really useful um, when you're trying to develop your pediatric development plan. You're not exactly sure which uh, dose to start with in different pediatric groups. And um, you want to minimize the number of samples that you're taking or number of doses that you're giving to those pediatric patients. Um, you can create a simulation data set from uh, databases from either the WHO or CDC. And then you can use allometric scaling and a POP-PK model and simulate exposures in pediatric patients. Another great uh, use of population PK models is to optimize the number of subjects and the number of blood samples drawn from each subject in a pediatric study. As we all know, pediatric clinical trials are very difficult to enroll, conduct, and they're very hard on the patients. Um, they, uh, these pediatric patients oftentimes don't have the ability to provide 10 or 12 blood samples um, at a certain sitting. And so you get one or two samples from each patient. Well, when is the best time to take those samples? So you can use a technique called de-optimal design. So what this does is it takes an existing population PK model and then it takes operational characteristics of the study, such as number of subjects, number of blood samples, timing of the blood samples, and that puts them together to create the optimal solution. That's why it's called de-optimal design. The optimal solution 
for that specific scenario. And you're gonna collaborate with your clinical operations team a ton doing the optimal design because there's not a single right answer because you're gonna change the conditions. You're gonna say, hey, what if we use fewer patients? What if we have fewer samples per patient? Well, they can't stay six hours in clinic to get that five hour sample. They can only stay three hours in clinic. So what's the best time to take the sample if they can only stay three hours? And well, we can get two samples, but they have to be on separate visits. Um, so all those questions can go into these operational designs and then you can identify the best sampling scheme. So the best number and timing of PK samples and the best number of subjects to achieve your goals. And usually what you're trying to achieve in a de-optimal design is the ability to estimate a model parameter such as clearance, which is directly related to AUC. You want to estimate that with a certain level of precision or uncertainty, plus or minus 20%, plus or minus 30%. And that gives you an idea or a confidence that when you collect the data, you can then analyze it and refine your model. Another example of, or another use of population PK models are to support drug labeling decisions in special populations. So there's a lot of these special populations that are really difficult to enroll in phase one type controlled studies. If you're going to run a food effect study in healthy volunteers, that's easy. It's very easy to enroll a group of healthy volunteers that are going to take the, the product with and without food. But perhaps your product can only be administered to patients because it is, is not healthy or maybe toxic to healthy volunteers, such as an oncology agent. How do you then evaluate some of these situations? Population PK modeling can be used to help evaluate that in some of these special populations. Or what if you have a really rare disease and you need to know renal impairment or, or impacts of renal impairment on the PK, but in your patients? Well, maybe you can use uh, creatinine clearance levels in the patients to understand if there appears to be a relationship between clearance and creatinine clearance in these patients. Another really useful tool uh, or useful thing you can do with a population PK model is compare and contrast different dosing regimens that you may have used in clinical development. A really common one is comparing flat dose, such as milligrams per subject, to weight-based dosing, milligrams per kilogram for each subject. So this is super common. A lot of times with injectables, they'll start out and they'll dose at milligram per kilogram basis because they want to normalize the exposure for each patient. And then when they get closer to the time when they're going to produce the product for patients and go for approval, they want the marketing team says, well, it's much easier to administer a flat dose of 200 milligrams or 300 milligrams rather than, you know, two migs per kg. And so um, if you've conducted studies at both of those dose levels with those dosing regimens, you can compare the exposures between them using your population PK model. Another great use of population PK models is when you compare when you have different doses that were used in multiple efficacy trials. So maybe you had an efficacy trial that had uh, a dose of 50 milligrams and uh, 200 milligrams. And then you had a separate trial that had only 100 milligrams was the only dose that was administered. How do you compare and contrast those? How do those fit together because they weren't identical studies? Are the results consistent 
from 50 to 100 to 200 milligrams. So all of these are great uses of population PK models, and that's why we developed them, and that's why regulators want to see them because they also want to answer some of these questions during their review for approval. Let me move on to the more technical aspect of the process of developing a population PK model and then confirming the utility of that model. Before I start, let me remind you of a famous phrase by the British statistician George Box. He said, quote, remember that all models are wrong. The practical question is, how wrong do they have to be to not be useful? Close quote. A lot of times you'll hear it differently, but that's the actual quote from him. So there isn't a single correct population PK model for the data at hand, but you really want to select the model that has the fewest flaws and problems in the areas that are important to your development question. For example, if you're working on a drug product and don't want to have the levels fall below some minimum target, like an antibiotic, and you want to have a minimum level on board before the next dose is administered, you may not really care if your model accurately captures the absorption phase and the Cmax but you might be very concerned about how well it captures clearance and the terminal phase of the profile. But in contrast, maybe you're working on a drug product that has a risk of causing a significant drop in blood pressure at peak concentrations. So then you might be very concerned about the absorption parameters and um, the model at the early stages and less concerned about the terminal elimination rate constant. So the basic process for model development includes four main steps. There's exploratory analysis, structural model building, covariate analysis, and then model qualification or validation. So in the first step, exploratory data analysis is where you plot the observed data to discern the structural model components, such as the number of compartments, the possible absorption profiles, and any obvious covariates. In my opinion, this is actually the most important step in model development, but it usually doesn't get much time. A colleague of mine, Mark Laverne, often said that a PK model is simply a mathematical representation of the observed data. So the data should really reveal all the aspects of the model in your exploratory plots. So here's a few examples. A semi-logarithmic plot of the concentration time data with time after dose will reveal if a one, two, or three compartment model best fits the data. At a minimum, you can usually rule out one of those three structural models. Plots with data colored by a key covariate like food status can reveal if the presence of food shows different exposure than fasting. The same idea can really apply to categorical covariates like sex, race, ethnicity, and so on. If you have a relatively rich data set, or if you have a subgroup that has a rich data set, you can calculate AUC and Cmax values using NCA methods, and then plot those estimates versus continuous variables or categorical variables to identify potential covariates. So if you plot AUC versus creatinine clearance, you may show a trend in exposure based on renal function, or Cmax versus body weight may show a trend in volume of distribution. All of these plots and summaries should allow you to construct a list of expected features in the model. You can even generate initial estimates for many of the parameters and the effects from these initial plots. So initial estimates for clearance can be calculated as dose divided by AUC. Initial estimates of volume of distribution can be dose divided by Cmax. Covariate effects can be estimated by the differences in plots or summaries. 
So when you're done with your exploratory analysis, you should be able to write down something like this. The drug appears to have at least two compartments because I see a bend in the concentration time plot after the Cmax. Food causes an increase of about 20% in peak exposure. No differences between sex and race are observed in the exposures. And body weight seems to be related to Cmax where you might have body weight effects on volume of distribution. So that's it. Just main ideas of the potential effects that you have. There are not specific plots that you have to produce as part of exploratory analysis, but as you're looking at the data, try to uncover any relationships that you might see and then write those down. Step two is to develop the structural PK model. The structural models evaluated should be guided by the exploratory analysis you just completed. So in the second step, you're actually going to evaluate the model fits from different compartmental structures. You're going to fit a one compartment and a two compartment model, or perhaps a two and a three. You might test different absorption models, first order, zero order, combined, a lag time, transit compartments. You can also evaluate between subject variability terms and residual error terms. It is very important to have confidence in the structural model at this stage before you start playing with random error terms. Random error terms can hide model misspecification. So in these analyses, I like to focus not only on improvements in the objective function value, but also improvements in the observed versus population predicted plots. The population predicted values are the concentration estimates using only the structural model and not including any between subject variability estimates. This gives an unfiltered view of the quality of the structural model versus the observations. So predictions won't be perfect, but you don't want to see large deviations in predictions versus observations. And the overall trend should lie along the line of unity where y equals x. If instead you look at the observed values versus individual predictions, you might see great agreement even when you have a poor or the wrong structural model. This is because the random errors for the between subject variability might be doing all of the work and moving the parameters to a new space to fit the data in spite of the structural model. So you might get really good looking individual predictions versus observations for your two compartment model, but the actual best model fit is a one compartment model. So once you feel that the absorption, distribution, and elimination structural components are a good match for the data based on that population versus observed data plot, you wanna start working on the random errors. In a population PK model, there's two types of random errors. There's between subject variability, commonly we call these the ADAs, and then there's the residual variability, also called epsilons, or simply just the errors. Random errors mean that the mean value across the entire population is zero, and then the model estimates the variance or the standard deviation of that normal distribution. Thus, you can test each error to confirm that they meet these criteria by taking the mean of each set of eta values and each set of residuals and confirming that the mean is very close to zero. I generally recommend including as many eta values as the model will support in a stable model. I also like testing three distinct residual error models for each analyte in the analysis. These are additive error alone, proportional error alone, 
and additive combined with proportional error together. There are some differences in what one might consider a stable model, and there's differences in how you may want to include ADAs depending on your covariate search algorithm. But these topics are better discussed in detail in a future episode. At a minimum, the model should minimize successfully, the diagnostic plot should be reasonable, and the parameter estimate should be consistent with prior information that you have from either earlier work, but also your exploratory analysis. Step three is now an evaluation of covariate parameter relationships. So there's numerous methods that can be used, such as a stepwise covariate search, a full model, a full model approach, graphical exploration, machine learning, and even more. But before I discuss some of these approaches, first I'd like to review what the definition is of a covariate in the context of population PK modeling. A covariate is information about each subject that is derived from the clinical study that can be used to explain differences between individuals in a specific model parameter. Covariate values should always come from the clinical data directly or be derived from the clinical data. So some examples include age, sex, race, body weight, disease designation, creatinine clearance, liver function tests, and food status. I do not recommend using variables that are not subject specific, such as study, cohort, treatment group. These later variables actually differentiate groups of subjects, but they're only observational, meaning you can't use them for predictions of future subjects. There's two different numerical or, or types of covariates. You have categorical and continuous. For categorical variables like sex and race, you should choose a reference group and then all other categories, the effects for all other categories are measured relative to that reference. The reference group is often the most common group, but it could be a different group. For example, if you're doing an analysis for submission to Japanese regulators, you may set Japanese race or Japanese ethnicity as the reference, even if a majority of the data is not in Japanese subjects. Continuous variables use a reference value also. Many people choose the median of the observed data. However, I prefer to use a standard value when possible. So consider body weight. The median value of body weight in your population may be 74 kilograms. Using that value, you know that half your subjects are above 74 kilograms and half are below, which gives your effect a nice centered value in your data. But for clinicians, they commonly commonly use a reference value of 70 kilograms for body weight when they make dosing decisions. So if you use a reference value of 70 kilograms instead of 74, you might produce a model that has more clinically relevant applications. And that choice of the reference value won't really affect the model, but it will change covariate parameter relationships. One last thing about covariates is how you handle missing information. The most common practice is that you impute a missing covariate for a subject with the reference category or the reference value. Another option is uh, to actually impute a missing covariate uh, based on other information. So you might impute one body weight for a female subject and a different body weight for a male subject if that body weight was missing. 
So in my experience, this imputation based on other factors is more commonly done in academic settings and not in drug development models. In fact, I've almost never used this in drug development models. Now that we've defined what a covariate variable is, um, let's talk about how they're used. The idea behind covariates is that they can explain some of the differences between the typical value for a model parameter and the individual value for that parameter. So let's say the typical clearance is 12 liters per hour. And we have one subject who has an individual clearance of 16 liters per hour. So that subject has an eta of four liters per hour. 12 plus four equals 16. By including a covariate in the model, perhaps we get a typical value of 12 liters per hour, an effect of two liters per hour for the covariate, and now the eta for that subject is two liters per hour. The individual clearance is exactly the same or nearly the same. It's 16 liters per hour, but it's now 12 plus two plus two. So the amount that is explained is broken into two pieces, a typical value and a covariate effect. And the unexplained portion or the eta has shrunk. So now we have a better way to predict the clearance for some other subject because if we know that covariate value, we can then predict 12 liters per hour plus two, and now we have a better estimate for that individual. So including covariates should shrink the eta values, but generally will not change the individual model parameter estimates and generally won't change the typical value parameter estimates. So let me give a brief overview of some of the common techniques for covariate searching now that we know what a covariate is. The stepwise covariate search is probably the most common and it's really a brute force approach to testing covariates. So this approach uses multiple forward and backward steps. In each forward step, you're looking to add a covariate and each backward step, you're looking to delete covariates that are not important. So in a forward step, you take all the covariate parameter relationships and create one model for each relationship. And then you minimize all of those models and then you look at the drop and objective function value. And for all the models that meet a statistical criteria, meaning they have a statistically significant drop and objective function value with a, a p-value of 0 0.01, you then say, oh, all these are statistically significant. So we will choose the covariate parameter relationship that had the biggest statistically significant drop. And we now include that in the model. And then we move to step two. Step two is the next forward addition. So you take now n minus one covariate parameter relationships, because you already have one in there, and you include all of those singly in these models. So now you have a bunch of models with two covariate parameter relationships, and you minimize those. And again, look at statistically significant drops in objective function value and select the most significant one. You do this again and again and again until you get to a point that none of the covariate parameter relationships result in a statistically significant drop. That means you've finished your forward addition steps. So as you can see, let's say you have 30, maybe let's back up. Let's say you have 10 covariates and let's say you're gonna test them on just three parameters, clearance, volume, and Ka. So 10 parameters on each of these, or 10 covariates on each of these three parameters, 10 times three is 30. 
So in the first round of forward edition, you run 30 models. You're going to minimize 30 models. Round two, 29. Round three, 28. And so on. So you can see that you're fitting many, many, many models each round. After you get to the forward edition, then you have the backwards deletion process. So uh, the backwards deletion process, what you normally do is increase the statistical significance or actually so you decrease the p-value so you make it more stringent so you increase the stringency of that statistical test so maybe you say hey p has to be less than 0.001 for us to keep the the covariates in the model in the backward step you take the the model with all the covariates included from the forward edition and you remove one so let's say you have 10 covariates in the final model you run 10 different models. Each model has one covariate removed. And then you look at the change in objective function value. When you remove a covariate, if the model, if it was an important covariate, the objective function value will actually go up because you've lost information. So you look for a statistically significant increase in objective function value. And um, if it went, if it was a significant increase, or excuse me, if it was a significant increase, you ignore it. It's going to stay. But if it was not a significant increase, you say, ah, here's this set. Which one do we remove? Well, we you remove the one that increased the objective function value the least amount. So the least significant one. So you let's say you remove one. Now you have nine left. You repeat the backwards deletion process. And you keep doing until every covariate that remains in the model was statistically significant. So that gets you to a final model, but as you can see, you're probably going to test many, many, many models and they're going to run for quite some time. So when you have a model that might take an hour to minimize and you're running 30 models, that's 30 hours. You can parallelize it perhaps, but uh, you need high power computing to get past four or eight cores for a normal laptop. So this can take a lot of time. But it's the most accepted, it's the most commonly used methodology. There's some bias associated with it, but it, the bias is at least understandable or accepted. Another approach is called the full model approach. So in the full model approach, what you do is you add all of the covariates together at one time into the base model. And so this approach is intended to have less selection bias compared to the stepwise search. So it's more like a traditional statistical model. Let's include all the effects, we'll minimize the model, and then look at the effect size. And some of the effect sizes may be insignificant or really, really small. That means, hey, food does not have an effect because the effect size was really small. So in theory, works great. The practice is a little bit different because this often suffers uh, because when you include a lot of covariates, the model does not minimize successfully. When it doesn't minimize successfully, you need to do something. And usually doing something means removing some of those covariates that you had added in in the full model. As soon as you start doing that, you're introducing some selection bias. There's ways to minimize that bias, but it still exists. Um, so this is just another method. I have not used it that often because... Uh, it doesn't really get me away from selection bias because the full model usually fails. So another uh, approach is machine learning methods. These are sort of new to the population PK space and they're quite varied. So I'll give you a couple examples um, without a lot of details. I hope later to talk more about machine learning and population PK. Um, 
One approach is a genetic learning algorithm. So in genetic learning, it builds a, a first round of models and it and then it tests those and it determines which ones were the best models. And then it decides which next set of models to build based on this genetic algorithm. And so the idea behind this is it's more efficient than the brute force approach of a stepwise covariate search because you're not testing everything. What you end up testing or, or as each step along the way, you refine and test fewer and fewer things based on their experience from prior models that were fit. So that's one approach that, that's that been done. Another approach is a selection of covariates using the base model ADAs and individual covariates. So covariate uh, parameter relationships are evaluated in the base model. Correlations are identified and potential potentially significant covariates are, are listed. And then you get a list of likely covariates and you include all of those in the full or in the model and then you minimize it. So this is kind of like the full model approach, but the difference is instead of uh, having a manual selection process, you have a machine learning analytical process that selects the covariates that might be um, included. None of these methods is actually better or the gold standard or more approved than the others. They all have advantages and disadvantages, but in a future episode, I'll discuss all that and go into detail about that. So finally, step four is called model qualification or validation. So I actually don't like the word validation, but it's the word that the FDA used in their guidance. I prefer the word qualification because I believe we're checking to see if the model is qualified for a specific purpose. To me, the word validation suggests there's a known quote unquote true model and we're validating the model we've developed is in fact the quote true model. But as George Box said, all models are wrong. So regardless of the name, this last step involves generating goodness of fit plots and possibly refining the random error structure of the model. The goodness of fit plots test the modeling assumptions, such as do the predicted values match the observed values? Is the mean of the residuals close to zero? Are the random effects normally distributed? Are there correlations between the random effects that need to be added into the model? Do the residuals change over time? Do the residuals change across model predictions? In addition, you can use simulation-based diagnostics to evaluate the ability of a model to predict values that are consistent with their observations. So these simulation-based diagnostics include visual predictive checks, numerical predictive checks, and normalized prediction distributed errors. So after these four steps are completed, uh, successfully and within the criteria defined in the analysis plan, the POP-PK model would then be considered fit for purpose, whatever that purpose was, and used in either development efforts, used for labeling, or used to um, generate exposure measures for exposure response analysis or included in a submission. Now, as part of a submission, you have to submit electronic files so that regulators can review and potentially replicate your analyses. So the results of a POP-PK analysis effort should be documented in a written report. The, the guidance provides a complete outline of the format and content that is expected in the report. In addition to a report, you should also be prepared to submit electronic files to the FDA or other regulators to permit them to replicate your analyses and test your conclusions. Often this is called a submission package. It's provided as a zip file that contains model files, 
data files, and results files. So the submission package really has three distinct parts. So part one is a reviewer guide and or definition file. So a reviewer guide is a simple text document that lists all the files included in the submission package, a description of each file's purpose, an explanation of how to use the file if necessary, any conversions that are required. And then the definition file, also sometimes called the define.pdf or define file, is a file that includes definition of all of the variables in each analysis data set that's included in the submission package. So if your data has uh, 39 columns, then your define file would include a description of each of those 39 columns of data. The reviewer guide is always included in the main directory of the submission package, and the define file can be a part of the reviewer guide, or maybe it's a separate file, or maybe it's actually in a folder called datasets, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. The second part is a folder that has the name programs, all lowercase, P-R-O-G-R-A-M-S. Inside that folder are all of the model files or scripts and any associated results files that are presented in the report. So um, it, it requires key models, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But if you're using non-mem for your analysis, you'd include the non-mem control file, which is usually a .ctl or .mod text file. You'd also include the non-mem output file, which is usually a .lst file if you're using PSN to run your non-mem models. So for each model, you're going to include two text files in the program folder, the model file and the results file. The FDA re usually requests the base model, the final model, and any key intermediate models. In most cases, it's just base and final. Some cases, there's some key intermediate model um, for some reason that you want to include. But the rule of thumb is if you generated goodness of fit outputs for a model, and put them into the report to describe something, you should probably include that model in the submission package. You can also include other model files or scripts in the program file, excuse me, program folder if they're critical. So maybe you used R to perform some simulations and create tables and figures in the report, you could include that R script in the programs folder. The last part is uh, the datasets folder. So it's lowercase datasets. And inside that folder are all the data sets used in all of the modeling files that you included in the programs file, well, excuse me, programs folder. So in most cases, the same data set is used for all models. So maybe you only need one single data set, but sometimes you have different data sets that are used for different reasons. So maybe you used one data set for your base model and you used a different data set for your final model because you had to add flags for conditional weighted residuals or something of that nature. Datasets can be provided in both a comma-separated variable CSV format, which is native to most analysis applications, but they also sometimes ask for it in a SAS transport or XPT format. So the define file discussed in part one might be also in this folder, but it might be in the main folder. So population PK analysis is a large and potentially complex topic, but today we only discussed a few pieces of the 2022 FDA guidance on population PK. 
So I briefly touched on some of the applications for POP-PK analysis for both drug development and drug labeling decisions. I gave a general overview of the model development and qualification or validation process. And then I gave um, an outline of the files and information that these regulators are expecting to see in a submission package when they're actually going to review your modeling work. So there's a lot more detailed information in the FDA guidance, so I encourage you to download it from the show notes and read it. For more information, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me an email to nathan at tushersolutions.com or sign up for my newsletter at tushersolutions.com forward slash newsletter. The newsletter is a copy of the show notes sent to your email each time an episode is released. Also, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to the show. Thank you.